Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda, Talk 7 by Asha Praver, March 27, 2012, copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Okay, good evening all. I will stay seated, so if you need to adjust yourselves for a better or a worse view, depending on what your preference is. Okay. We are on Chapter 17, Yogananda Salient Characteristics. We are up to number 12. So, number 12. As you will see in the next chapter, he was concerned for the upliftment of all mankind. That was his mission on earth. Quantitative, not only qualitative. Qualitative also, of course, for he brought techniques for transforming human consciousness through people's awareness and use of energy. Some of his disciples were concerned only with their own salvation. That was fine by him, but he was grateful when he found anyone who wanted to bring his message to the whole world. New hope for all men was his motto. Um, last week when we were talking about innovation especially, um, I was commenting about how some of these characteristics of Yogananda were um, messages not only about his mission, but about how to be his disciple. Every master has his own way of doing things. Because most of us were, have been educated in these teachings primarily through Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda's teachings and Kriyananda's teachings. We don't necessarily even know sometimes what the specifics of our path are because it being for many of us the only path we've ever seriously followed, we don't have a, a point of contrast. Um, the fact, for example, that even though in Autobiography of a Yogi it, just, it states this, we tend to read it just like an historical fact. We don't see the implications that Sri Yukteswar corrected a misunderstanding that instead of being in 300,000 years of Kali Yuga, which is apparently what the tradition has been in India, we are actually out of Kali Yuga and into ascending Dwapara. One of the parades that Sri Yukteswar had in Serampore was the celebration of the arrival of Dwapara Yuga. And it wasn't greeted with uniform enthusiasm. <laughs> because many scholars and pundits thought that it was presumptuous of him to contradict what everyone else believed to be true. I mean, these are all controversies that, you know, are so remote to our way of thinking that we don't have any understanding of it. But, but not every spiritual teacher accepts Sri Yukteswar's explanations. In fact, um, we were having a discussion once, just, you know, myself and my friends, with... Um, devotees of another ashram, a contemporary teacher. And in their whole tradition, they, were, they accepted the fact that this was Kali Yuga and that it would stay Kali Yuga for hundreds of thousands of years. And it completely colored their mission. Because if it's, if it's Kali Yuga, even, and it's just going to stay that way, there's really no point in one thinking about the upliftment of the whole planet or planting seeds for any kind of future development, because none of it will ever go anywhere. Which is why, uh, to a large extent, right after the 
life of Christ, even though Jesus himself had his followers gather into communities, you know, the tradition of the Desert Fathers developed where they all went off and just lived as hermits and just turned their back on society as a whole. It was an extremely reasonable thing to do because there was no hope of uplifting it. And it was just, well, I want the phrase I want to say is going to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> which is always a phrase that has amused me anyway. But it was just going down, down, down. So why just pour water down a drain? You know, if you were sincere, you just walked away from it and worked on your own salvation and helped those who wanted to be. But society was just a hopeless cause. But if it's Dwapar Yuga ascending, if Kali Yuga has ended and we're going into an age of ever-increasing enlightenment, everything about the situation is different, including just even the optimism that you can plant seeds that are going to last and not be destroyed by the barbarians, you know, before you can blink. I mean, literally, when you hear Biasa and now Purushottama talk about, you know, the, the last centuries of Kali Yuga and the absolute nadir of Kali Yuga, I remember the first time I heard Biasa just talking about historically, because I didn't know anything about history, just, you know, one ravaging horde swept over and knocked out the remnants of civilization here and another from another direction, and just everything of culture or learning, it was just all destroyed. That's when the Irish saved civilization, when they took it all into their monasteries and kept a flame alive until it, the nadir had passed and we could start up the other side. So, uh, you know, masters are sensible with, about these things. Of course, Jesus came in declining Kali Yuga, but the flame of his teaching was kept alive because it was pulled out from society. Kriya Yoga went into the Himalayas. You know, this return of Kriya Yoga has not been just Jesus' appeal to Babaji, but it's been the shifting of the Yuga. Whereas prior to that, it was really pearls before swine. There was no um, reason in the world why Kriya Yoga could or should be allowed to be widely dispersed because mankind as a whole was too gross. It had to be protected in the mountains. So when Lahiri made that appeal, as the story is told, um, he was also making a statement, and Lahiri himself incarnating as a householder, he was also making a statement that this is Dwapar Yuga. What were you going to say? Just the Which was? They all accepted Sri Yukteswar's analysis. Did, did, I never heard that Lahiri talked about it one way or another. Because it was Sri Yukteswar who made the declaration. But Lahiri's incarnation was evidence of it. Because he was evidence of the combination of the householder and the spiritual life, which is characteristic of a higher age. And it seems to me also that, um, I, I think the biggest evidence, if nothing else, if you just take one piece, the fact that Sri Yukteswar wrote that before Einstein was even born, and uh -huh. then around the time he said it would shift, Einstein made the discovery that all matter is just yeah. a form of energy. Like yeah. that alone. I mean, the evidence is really remarkable. And people are getting taller and living longer, <laughs> which is also a sign. I mean, people think it's because of nutrition, but where does nutrition come from? And that's one of the things they say, that in, in uh, lower ages, people are smaller. There's less energy on the planet. I mean, you walk down the street and, you know, crowds of women over six feet tall is just perfectly common. Whereas even, even in my own childhood, such a woman would have been a freak virtually. And now there's just lots of very tall women and they strive to be tall. And you know, it's something that I can relate to personally, so I noticed it particularly. Um, so in any case, so he was able to have a mission that was really about uplifting society, which is why all of us are living in Palo Alto, you know, which is why we're just in the middle of this place 
um, the spiritual boonies, as Swami once said to me. <laughs> Just um, because everything is happening and, it, and it's appropriate for us. And when I when we think about what we're doing here, you know, it isn't just a question of what would inspire us. It's a question of, 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 of establishing precedents that will grow oh, through the generations, really, literally, and set the tone. That's why the most important thing that we do at this time is to, is to keep the vibration correctly. And, you know, we can innovate or be creative if we want to, but we have to be very, very careful to keep the vibration right. Because if the vibration aberrates at such an early stage, then it'll, it'll shift endlessly. Which is why we're so fortunate that Swami still takes an interest and will express an opinion about many, many different things. And even if it doesn't suit our personal needs, we have to really think about um, the fact that there are, what, just a handful of temples at this point of this type and that everything will grow from the seeds we're planting. We have to be very, very attentive to him. And the fact that he even says here, um, you know, his mission was quantitative. We also just don't have the luxury, which is the luxury that SRF has taken, which Swami does not approve of, of just sort of essentially um, pulling everything back in. Um, they, when Master was alive, he had a restaurant, for example. You know, where, which was it Encinitas that he had the restaurant? Or was it at Lakeshore on the It was Encinitas. You know, we've all seen the sign that says mushroom burgers, the big sign. Now, I mean, think about that. You know, this great master comes to America. He starts this little roadside cafe, and he puts a giant sign on the roof that says mushroom burgers. You know, he was, among other things, he was having a good time. <laughs> but also, like, where is all of this coming from? You know, he wants to tell people that there's a completely other option. Last, last week we were talking about him being responsible for the recipes that became the Loma Linda meat substitutes. You know, he was really thinking about where this was going and how he was going to help take it there. But after Master died, the people who were in charge of SRF just folded up those sorts of things. I guess he ran a hotel in Encinitas, too. I, I read that somewhere. I guess it's in this book that I read it. Yeah, yeah. and he, read, he had that restaurant. And Didn't he have a restaurant at Lake Shrine, too? Wasn't there some? There was a cafe in Hollywood, but they closed it. After he died, all those things were closed up because the people who took over after him didn't understand what he was doing. And they thought of it in terms of their own salvation. They thought of it in terms of a traditional approach, but they didn't understand that the tradition they were looking to was the tradition that was over. And that's why Swamiji's frustration with the entire definition of Master's legacy as SRF has defined it, which is why he's challenged it, is that it's all about perpetuating a tradition which is in the past. You know, they're trying to, to maintain a Kali Yuga approach when, in fact, Master came to innovate because he was, he was looking for quali a quantitative upliftment in a new age when many things would be possible that had never been possible before. And as his disciples, it behooves us to think that way. I mean, I myself have often, you know, sort of struggled against my own just um, disinclination or unwillingness to just accept the lengths to which Swamiji was willing to go. When he first wrote the oratorio, which we just, of course, performed on this weekend, and when he first wrote it, he was just determined 
that we would get that music into the traditional churches. And we spent, I think, a couple of years. Yeah, were you, I mean, you might have been part of, were you part of that effort where, you know, on the phone and driving around the country and trying to persuade priests and ministers all over the place to take that. We did not say it was from Ananda. We said the author was J. Donald Walters. We didn't want to have any association with Swami Kriyananda. Everybody involved used their, uh, the names their mothers gave them, even if they had received names from Swami afterwards. And we pretended it just sprang from some, who knows, tiny little Christian cult that no one had ever heard of that was, <laughs> remained unnamed because Swamiji felt he ought to give them a chance. That was his point of view. He ought to give them a chance. Plus, it once, as he said at one point, they have all that wonderful real estate. That <laughs> 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 if we could just convert them, it would just be a lot more efficient than having to start over. I was completely like, you know, I get behind everything he does, but I was so like, who needs them? That's always my philosophy, like, who needs them? And, you know, at the end of it, when it just really proved to be a hopeless quest, he Swami shrugged his shoulders. I remember we were sitting at Carmel, in Carmel at the time. Well, he said, I knew it didn't work, but I felt I owed it to them to try like that. I just rolled my eyes, you know, like, all that effort, what was that about? He always knew, but at the same time, he felt he owed it to them to try because he qualitative as well as quantitative. Just if people will receive it, let's see if we can, you know, get it into their worlds. And so that's why he's always writing books, has always written so many different books from so many different angles and used the name J. Donald Walters for a lot of things. He's moving away from it a little bit now. I think he sort of tried and enough was enough. Um, but he still, I mean, he suggests it sometimes. I think the simple marketing complexity of him writing books under two names, it's just been, we can barely market, you know, his prodigious output as it is. And I think the double name is really hard for people. But nonetheless, he himself is still always looking for a way for qualitative upliftment, which is let's not set up any obstacles to people's acceptance of this. I mean, many of you have been with Ananda long enough to remember in the 19, early 80s when he um, started wearing Western clothes when he would lecture. He always had gone out in Indian clothes, the, the traditional orange robes of a Swami, and he wore his hair long. And then in the early 80s, he cut his hair short, which he's worn it short ever since. And he started, when he would appear in public, he would wear a suit and tie, or at least a jacket and a tie, would dress in Western clothes, because he felt that having to deal with all that foreign culture just set one more barrier in front of people accepting him. And he said, you know, he would always spend all his time explaining what was a Swami, and he could just never get to the main point. Because, and he didn't do that out of any particular personal interest in it. You know, he himself was so at home in the Indian culture. The first years of Ananda, the first almost 10 years, um, when I first arrived, you know, we, were, we, were, we just lived a rather secluded life up at the seclusion retreat and in the community. Even though we uh, announced our presence to the world in various ways and would participate in many of the outreach fairs and festivals and things that were going on in the 70s, we really lived our own life the way we wanted to live it, and people could join us if they wanted to. And part of that was Swami did, did wear his hair long. Um, he usually dressed in any public functions and even just often on a daily basis in Indian clothes. He was fond of wearing a dhoti. In the summer, he would wear a dhoti, 
and, and a Rudrakshamala, and he would just even go bare-chested, which, you know, when you go to India in a hot climate, you see it's just common, you know, it's just a, the way that the sadhus walk around. They just have no interest in any superfluities. But, of course, that was a an obstacle to some people. And when he would put on a shirt, he would put on an Indian kurta. Um... But what I was going to say about all of that is, and we did a lot, Swami would chant a lot more Indian chant and sing Indian bhajans more often. But there was a certain point, he said later, when he himself had to, had to withdraw his consciousness from the Indian ways. He said because it was so magnetic to him that he would just fall into that bob so completely that he found it very, very difficult to re- relate to the Western culture. And out of service to Master, out of the understanding that Master's mission was not to Indianize America. And, you know, years later when he wrote what became known as the, the, the chanting letter, is how it's been called, for those of you who lived through that, when he wrote to all of us that he felt that our style of chanting was just becoming, our choice of chants and our style of chanting was becoming much too Indian. And he, and you know, Master played the harmonium, usually just the harmonium. He didn't, he didn't play that many chords or any chords. He didn't have guitars. He just played the harmonium with melody, chanted in a very simple manner. And he knew all those Indian chants and he didn't play them. You know, he wrote, he wrote others. Just very, 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 very little of the Indian um, culture, the Hindu way of doing things. He, he just brought very little of it over. And Swami just pointed out to us, you know, we have to be, we have to be consistent with Master's intention. We can't just simply follow our own um, preference in this. And it was probably in that context, so he might have even put that in that letter, that he just talked about himself, you know, speaking personally, it was very moving to him, but it wasn't what Master did, and we had to pay attention to that. And I even remember when we started the, the center in San Francisco, and we had, for those 10 years, we had that big house on Broadway right near Fillmore. It was in the Pacific Heights. It was a, a, a big, beautiful mansion. I would say we, but they. I wasn't really a part, that much a part of it. But... We were always in the habit at that point of taking our shoes off before we went into our temple, which is a custom still followed in Ananda village. And so it was almost like just at, at the front door of that house, should we take off our shoes? And Swamiji actually said, if you ask people to take off their shoes, this work will never grow. It was just like it's not an American custom. People walk into all their churches with their shoes on. And, and you know, for many of us, even to this day, you wince a little. And we still, like, you'll find sometimes if you'll line their shoes up over there or, or leave them at the stairs here. We used to leave them at the stairs. To actually walk all the way to the altar with your shoes on, it was, it was hard. I have, I'm, when I put on my uh, light bear clothes, I change my shoes. That's my way of dealing with it now. <laughs> I have my temple shoes. It's not that I never wear them outside, but they're my temple shoes. And that's, I feel a little just, you know, that deep-seated Indian samskar, which is so offended by walking around there with my shoes on. But, and all of these things Master carefully figured out, you know, that he wanted it to be a certain way because he wanted to attract as many people as possible. 
because he's an avatar. He came to change the age. You know, in another place, I, I don't know if it's coming up or we already said it, but he talked about how much Master emphasized being William, the conqueror. Why, of all his incarnations, Swami, you know, uh, speculates, did he mention that? Because William changed the entire course of history. And he wanted us to understand what kind of, a, what kind of an incarnation he was living. I'm here to change the entire course of history, so behave accordingly. <laughs> and I remember once when Ananda was under petty persecution, Ananda Village. The petty persecution was known, was known as the mailbox war, which is uh, we had a mailbox on Tyler uh, Foot Road there, and the neighbors just kept smashing it, knocking it over, smashing it, and it became kind of like a challenge. Kent White got really engaged in trying to build a mailbox that no one could destroy. So he finally, um, Kent White's a big man with access to tools, let's just sort of put it that way, and he knows how to use them. And so they, they sank like four feet in the ground and they made a concrete pillar that was four feet in the ground that came up and it was all concrete and then it was a concrete stand and then they, um, they built a mailbox and put it on top, you know, so that if you drove a truck into it, which is their, the neighbor's favorite way of knocking our mailbox over, was to drive a truck into it, your truck would be hurt by the mailbox. <laughs> So there was evidence of attempts to push the mailbox over, which did not succeed because it was four feet of concrete into the ground. And so it lasted about two weeks. And then someone came and pried the top off of the concrete stand. No. So then we had, for, for then for years afterwards, there was a concrete plinth with a platform and the mailman would just put the mailbags on it. <laughs> and whoever was distributing the mail would make a point of being at the road when it came or shortly after to pick it up. So it was like a, a standoff at that point. Oh, it was ridiculous. Um, Ananda, let's see, let me try to think. Because whenever there's the presence of light, there's always a corresponding effort to snuff it out. Because Ananda was straight-laced and squeaky clean compared to our neighbors who for the most part were genuine dropouts, often um, living with a parallel illegal economy based on growing marijuana and smoking it. Um, they were mostly very, very anti-authority, anti-organization. And there was, <laughs> there was nothing out there to rebel against except us. <laughs> and there was a certain implied um, uh, superiority because Ananda lived a cleaner, more uplifting life than a lot of people and that was offensive to people because they felt in instinctively put down even though we weren't really actually thinking about them at all. Um, some of them were actually people who had started out at Ananda and for one reason or another didn't find the lifestyle suitable for them. But as Swamiji said, some people co come to Ananda and when they find it unsuitable for themselves, they just leave and don't think about it again. There are others, and I can, if I can almost quote it, for whom Ananda has such an effect that even after they leave it, they cannot simply put it down. They have to justify their exit. And the only way they can justify their exit is by making us wrong. So it, it went on for decades, really, literally. Only, you know, even still a little bit, but mostly... Um, it's old news, but on occasion it can be brought to life again. You know, just the, the threat of what we might do. 
That was the whole effort to become a California city, was to break free of uh, the authority of the local county, which was influenced by the opinions of the neighbors. So, anyway. But the end point of all of that was in the midst of that effort with the mailboxes, and when, yet again, the mailbox was knocked over, I said to Swami, you know, oh, they've knocked over the mailbox again, and... He, I remember his response, and it was, he was typing, he was working at, he, that was when his, his whole house was just what is the living room of the dome now, and there were these partial walls that divided um, the section where the fireplace is, it, that's where his office was, and where the little room is now, it was a, an open loft, and that was his bedroom. And in any case, and the kitchen was where the piano is. So I was up in the kitchen, and he had walked around, and he was sitting in his office, but you could just still talk, because you were all in one room. And he was typing. He started typing. He, he received my news. It was the end of the day, delivery, news delivery. And uh, he was typing, and he said, and then he just called out across in that very strong voice, you see, we're trying to transform all of society, and naturally, it will take a little time. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always just sort of kept that in my mind. Oh, yes, naturally, it will take a little time. <laughs> he was just very casual about it. you know. Actually, just because we're on that vein, Peter Caddy, who was the founder with his wife, then wife Eileen of the Fintorn community, which is still there in Scotland. Um, Peter Caddy came to visit Swami Jiyadananda village. This could, must have been the 70s. And um, they had, at Fintorn, with great effort, they had built an, a temple, a beautiful temple. And then uh, somebody sabotaged it and actually burned it down. Yeah, I mean, it was it was arson. Somebody firebombed it, and after great effort, it was destroyed, which was, you know, their community struggled financially as much as ours did, so it was a big deal. So Peter was there, and Swamiji expressed some uh, 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 compassion. He commiserated with Peter for the loss of the temple, and Swami said, you know, in 1971, you know, our temple was destroyed also, and they just talked about temples being destroyed, and and Peter sort of laughed it off, and he said, well, he said, if you're not being persecuted, you're not doing enough good in the world. <laughs> he said, when they begin to persecute, it's, persecute you, it's a sign that you're doing what you should be doing. And there was a little discussion about the mailboxes, and then we all went on from there. <laughs> but, you know, it was no small thing. But still, if you're not being persecuted, you're not doing enough good. You're not, if you're not getting a reaction from the darkness, you need to be putting out more light. Completely, you know, just turns the usual way of thinking completely on its head that thinks that an easy life is a victorious one. Jesus said, you know, persecutions aplenty. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you and persecutions aplenty. Whoa. I like the part that just says and all these things will be added unto you. I was going to say that last part stayed out of the song. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Swamiji once, uh, he was rewriting uh, Walk, walk like a man, you know, go on alone, go on alone. And he, for a while, for a short time, there was a line that said, let them despise you, go on alone. <laughs> I objected that, you know, the word despise and the merry melody did not quite go together. But he was, he would have none of it for me when I said that. I was sort of like half joking. He was dead serious. He said, they will, just like that. Ooh, you know, that silenced me, that's for sure. You know, you're trying to uplift all of society, and much of society is really quite happy right where it is. 
And many people have power from pulling it down, not lifting it up. So, you know, it gets very complicated. That's why Jesus, we're coming into Easter. That's why Jesus met the unfortunate end that he did meet, or seemingly unfortunate. Hmm. Very strange. Okay, any comments or thoughts about that? I think it's interesting how, just taking this mailbox story, how Uh they, you know, kind of, I don't want to say fought the battle, but they continued to try to make a better mailbox that wouldn't get hit over. And then finally, they didn't give up, but they just kind of, um, it it reminds me of like Jesus saying, you know, turn the other cheek. If someone slaps, you just turn the other cheek, right? And so um, I actually experienced that recently at my work. There's some stuff going on and I just felt within that it was time to speak up. And so I did, and it wasn't met very well. It was met well by a couple of people who could uh-huh. see the, the purpose. But, um, but then this morning, I just thought, you know what? I did, I said what I needed to say. Uh-huh. I spoke my truth, and then I'll let go of it now. Yeah. I don't know. It was just kind of like, yeah. um, you know, uh, I don't know. I just can't, I, I don't know how to really explain it, but. But there's a point when you should speak up and then there's a point when you have to accept. Right. But it's like not backing down from our, our spiritual ideals. It's just merely um, yeah. not letting it influence, you yeah. know, or get us down because it's impersonal. Yes, that's exactly right. Surrender this morning. Surrender and Tushti are passing through on their way to some country. <laughs> they, you know, they, they're on their way back to India, but surrender was, uh, they've just come back, but they're on their way back. And, Surinder was just talking about the whole um, different culture about being on time for things and, you know, doing what you say and, you know, the culture of just saying, yes, I will, and not really meaning it and things like that. Surinder said that the Americans who've lived there a little longer have just, you know, looked them in the eye and said, you must not take it personally. (laughs) And to a certain extent, that's what you're saying. You know, you, you speak your truth and... If people don't want to hear it or they're incapable of hearing it or they're committed to other realities, you can't take that personally. You've done what you came to do and that's all you can do. Um, You're responsible, as Swami, which you once told me, for your intentions, but you can't be responsible for how your intentions are received because you can't control everybody else's responses. You You have to have purity of heart. And if your heart is not pure, then you have to work on that. But if your words just get blown away in the wind, it's a very hard lesson for me personally to learn because I just thought the world ought to hear me when I was saying something that they ought to hear. <laughs> it took me a long time to realize that they aren't interested or they may not be interested. It's just not. Finally, I finally realized I can't be responsible for everything that happens. Merely because I can perceive it, that doesn't mean that I'm responsible. People have their own karma they have to play out. I am responsible if I feel inspired to do something. But then after that, I have to think whether it's merely because I can think of something to do, I'm actually being asked to do it. It's a big distinction. Having a creative mind, I can almost always think of something to do. (laughs) So I have had to learn that I'm often not being asked to do it. Meddling is the word that Swamiji has sometimes used. But coming back to where we are, you know, there's another phrase in here that we should speak of. Some of his disciples were concerned only with their own salvation. That was fine by him. It's an interesting statement. You know, Swami just doesn't say it was okay. He said that was fine by him. But he was grateful 
Interesting words. When he found anyone who wanted to bring his message to the whole world. And Swamiji is also, without speaking directly, he's talking about his own relationship with Master and how important his coming was and how even in retrospect he realizes how eagerly Master welcomed him. Even after their meeting when he initiated him as a disciple and he spoke into the church, we have a new brother. And Swamiji, in retrospect, sort of hearing Master's voice, he realizes there was more in that than just sort of generally saying, oh yeah, someone else has come. There was a, a sense in Master that he saw where this, what this disciple wanted and where he was going. And Swamiji also writes that even as Swamiji was crossing the country on the bus with this intense personal intention that he had to become a disciple of this man, he was simultaneously thinking, this teaching is so great, everyone in the world needs to know that. Even before he was initiated, his mind was already going to how he would tell everyone. And so from the very beginning, Master perceived in him, um, not merely that Master you know, could use him, so to speak, but that Swamiji's own commitment was in that direction. And therefore, as Swamiji said, all his training from the start Master's training of him from the start was always, you have a great work to do. There are many people that you need to help. And he would motivate Swamiji in his own personal spiritual life on the basis of the fact that he had a responsibility for others. Now, we're, we're Swamiji's children. That doesn't mean that every single one of us also has an outward de destiny because some people are interested in their own salvation and that was fine with him. You know, Not everyone has... You know, people serve in many different ways. There's the famous exchange between Sadhana Devi, who now finds herself in India, but when she was raising her child at Ananda village, and Swamiji was gathering people and taking them back and forth across the country on national tours, and Sadhana Devi wrote to Swamiji, you know, with all due respect, I'm not interested. And Swami said, well, somebody has to stay home and make the community. <laughs> You know, that's fine. Your temperament is to be here and to, and to live an exemplary householder life as a devotee because that, that too is needed. If everyone were out on the road, there would be no community to send people back to. So the art of, of being a devotee, especially at Ananda, where there's so many choices and so many opportunities to do so many different things is that we also have to be deeply in tune with our own destiny. And we have to have the strength of character um, and the trust in our own intuition to both listen respectfully. I mean, it takes, it takes strength of character and trust in your own intuition to be receptive to other people's input. You no, know, you don't ask input if you're afraid of that input. And you're afraid of input, input if you're afraid of being contradicted or being discovered or being asked to do something you don't want to do or not having confidence in God's will. There's lots of reasons why we hide from other people's perception of us and, and don't ask advice. Um, at the same time, we have to be so confident and comfortable in ourselves that we can just receive what comes and then not feel um, unduly compelled, but be able honestly and simply to evaluate truth, to sense it for ourselves, to, to trust our brothers and sisters, to trust Swami Kriyananda and Master enough We'll work it out. We'll figure out a way. Even if, it, even if I have to rise to it or I have to defer, 
I mean, Swamiji's famous response, and it was actually to me, even though I, when I wrote the book, I didn't put my name on it. You know, when he'd asked me to do something that I tried to do and I just couldn't do. And I finally just felt hypocritical. So I said, sir, you know, you, you made that request to me, but I just can't do it. And he, without, I mean, I don't think he even took an extra breath. How well, so much for theory, he said, let's work with reality. I mean, there was just like nothing, no judgment, nothing. Just these things happen, let's go on. There's always a way to go forward. And, you know, that's a, that's a lot of uh, self-honesty required to be able to live in that truth. So right here, Master wants quantitative upliftment, which, which makes certain demands upon us. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we had to be born in America which in itself was an odd idea, you know, for a lot of us. <laughs> this, but we had to because this is where it was happening. I remember one of my friends, when we took him to India, one of our pilgrimages, he said, well, I can live in America the rest of my life now because at least I know I belong somewhere. <laughs> you know, and now it's just a crazy mixed-up world. But many of us who have been to India have a greater sense of homeland there, even in its present condition. There's just a greater feeling of um, this is my natural home. And uh, I mean, I finally realized I've shared with you all sometime. My face in the mirror has never looked right to me. And I finally, really just the other day, realized I think it's the wrong color. I think it's always been the wrong color. <laughs> it's just very, very odd and pale. <laughs> it's just sort of, I don't know if I'm really just being facetious or not, but I've always surprised when I see myself in the mirror or in a photograph. Look at that. <laughs> Weird things the mind does, isn't it? So, but think how many bodies we've had. I heard, um, I, I was told that when Bella Potapovskaya was on, in her last days of life, and to just this is Maria's older sister who also died of cancer at a relatively young age. Um, she wasn't Potapovskaya then, but that was their name, their birth name. Um, you know, she was leaving behind a home and a husband and, you know, a lot of things that you would think you would still be attached to. But she said that she was just seeing so many faces in front of her and she realized all those faces were her lives. And, you know, so it's just, she was incapable then of clinging to this one because it was, it was so random to cling to this one when all of those others were going in front of you. Just think how many different faces we've had. So a lack of deep attunement with this particular one can be based on many different reasons and is to be cultivated. You know, just why get so engaged in it? I was never a very good girl. I always found it so peculiar, you know, that women would spend so much time on their faces. It's just really hard for me. I still have about, I could spend about 17 seconds on my hair and then I become almost hysterical to get away from it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, why, why do it? And I would always see that. It was just so peculiar to me. But I think that's just, you know, we're yogis. But we've had to live here. We've had to do a lot of things that are not really natural to us. So when Swamiji used to drive that, that old uh, $75 car that we got at, in a government auction, we bought two of them on auction, one to cannibalize for, for parts and the other one for him to drive. It was a big old Chevrolet, and uh, he drove to a program in um, San Francisco. I think, and we went to a, we went to a reception at Saint Fra in Saint Francis Wood, I think it was, which is a very very exclusive Chi Chi area of San Francisco. And we all pulled up in that old Chevrolet, which you know, 
was a pretty much of a wreck of a car even at the time. And all around us were Cadillacs and Mercedes and limousines and all the other teachers had all driven up in something quite classy. And we parked the car as it happened a little bit distance because we were late. As we walked, you know, a block and a half through all these other cars, Swami said, I have to get a better car. (laughs) And he said, not that I care personally. And then he said, in India, they would respect me for driving this car. He said, in America, they think there must be something wrong with me that I'm driving such a vehicle. Why can't... He said, in India, where money... In America, where money is so easy to come by. He said, the only reason I would be driving a car like this is because there's something wrong with the work I'm doing. And so then he went out and bought a Ford. (laughs) A kind of like car that had a, had a, a, a style that you couldn't quite name. It looked, it looked more expensive and a little classier than it actually was. It was very carefully selected. At some later date, Swamiji was buying another car. And there was some Park Avenue Buick or something like that that he really liked because he had bad hips and it was very comfortable for him. And, you know, it was just a really good car for him. It had a really smooth ride, had a big trunk, it had comfortable seats. But then they gave him the brochure on it and he said, all the people in the ads look so smug and self-satisfied. <laughs> he just decided he didn't want to be one of them, so he bought a different car. <laughs> you know, odd, all these different nuances of things. Because, but he thinks about all of that because it's not his own life. And absolutely everything he does is representing Master. And therefore, it has to be considered from that point of view. You know, Swamiji rarely, never, goes out in public. I mean, wandering around Ananda village is different. But he would rarely go out in public without being a little dressed up. You know, he would often wear a sports jacket, often wear a tie. At times when no one else would. And it's not merely that he's of a different generation. But he was always representing Master and he knew it. You know, and so he just always wanted to present himself with a certain dignity. He would sometimes say to that, us, that to us, you have to be more dignified. You know, you, you, and he wouldn't always say this, but you know, you're, we are disciples of a great master. We need to be dignified. We need to recognize who we are. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And all of that is from master himself. I said to Swamiji once, everything you do is the way master did it, isn't it? He said, of course. <laughs> I said, and if you don't guide an Ananda in a certain direction or don't do a certain something, it's because it's not the way master did it or would have wanted it, is it? Of course, you know, like, yeah, where do you think my decisions come from? I was amused once when somebody made a comment about how enthusiastic Asha is about Christmas. And yeah, I do love Christmas. I love Christ. I love the holidays. But I also thought, it's my job, you know? It's, it's my responsibility to, to manifest what we're doing here. It's not a question of likes and dislikes. It's, it's, we, we have to be beyond that. It, whether we like it or not, it really doesn't matter. It's our responsibility. I was talking to someone, I, actually it's a letter that will come out before too long, about an individual who was talking about public worship and Sunday service and so on. And among the things that I answered was, you know, when we were in the early years of Ananda, we all went to Sunday service every Sunday. And it never crossed our minds to ask whether we wanted to go or not. It was our responsibility to go. Because it was our 
our willingness to come together and combine our energies with concentration and enthusiasm that created the experience for all of us and created the attunement that was the foundation of the whole life we were living together. It wasn't that I liked it or didn't like it. It wasn't that I didn't like it, but it was, that it was the wrong question. And, and in our life with Master, as disciples, we need to purge ourselves of ourselves. <laughs> it's just interesting but not relevant. You know, We have a life to live and we have to live it for Him. Yes. I like the way that you said Swamiji sometimes uh, talks about himself. He says, Swami Kriyananda is an event for which I am responsible. He's so detached from his own life and personality. It's just amazing. I mean, it's such an inspiration. And that's the whole secret. He's always trying to tell us, oh, it's easy, basically, to be stunningly, creatively prolific and all the other things he is. Just, you know, go to the spiritual life, tune yourself to Master and ask God to give it to you, and there it is. Sure, let's do it, you know, but why not? But we have to, it's a whole, it's a whole lifestyle. It's not just a fragment that you pull into it, it's a constancy of who's in charge here. Every time we do the purification, you know, open your heart to me, Master says, and I will enter and take charge of your life. I mean, what do you think that means? Sometimes when I say that, I think, oh. And, you know, again and again we've affirmed that. And I will enter and take charge of your life. Huh, what an interesting thought. And here he is telling us what that looks like. So, let's take a short break. And then we'll go on to the next one. Okay, yeah. I just thought there's a very interesting tale which I thought I'd just share here. So, uh, I, I came to know this through somebody Who's, who's from my family. So there's this seer or sage in Kanchi. I, I'm not sure if anybody has... He has met per, uh, the master and they have interacted, actually. So when you said how uh, Swami was actually... Uh, sometimes he had to do a lot of things because of the position he held. Uh-huh. So it was really... Uh, I thought about this small tale which I thought I'd share. So he's from an institution. He holds the position of the head of the institution and there have been, which has been there for thousands of years, and there is also other. There are also other institutions in India, uh, which are also led by sages and saints. And once this saint invited him for a conversation, and uh, people who were under him, they said, "You cannot go and meet him. We hold a higher position as an organization, and if you were to go and meet him, you would be sitting on the same ground with him, and that will not be something that will be taken well by people." And he was shocked. He said, what a horrible world can this be if a saint cannot meet another saint? Yeah. It cannot be more horrible than this. I'm going to meet him anyways. So he did go there, and they did sit and talk. And when he came out, he said that uh, uh, I'm not the reason because of which your organization has gone down. He was actually sitting in the Vajrasana posture uh-huh. where you fold the legs and you actually place your buttocks on the, the heel. Uh-huh. And the other saint was sitting on the, in Sukhasana where he sits on the floor. So he said, I was sitting one inch higher than the other saint, so I have not brought disgrace to your uh, <laughs> organization. That's so it was funny. very interesting. I mean, he did not uh, forget his responsibility as a humble saint, but neither uh-huh. did he ignore what his post or position comes with. <laughs> That's a very funny story. That's a very funny... You know, I remember when we all, and you all who live in India know this more than I, but Swami Kriyananda has always steadfastly avoided any kind of formality 
And so we were much accustomed in India to sitting, in, in, in America, to sitting on the same level that he would sit on. And I know, you know, the, when Swami would sit in a chair, the Indians would come in, they would always sit on the floor. And the Americans would all be sitting around on the couches, and the Indians would all be sitting on the floor just sort of looking at us like, what are you doing? It, would, we'd, it never crossed our minds. He'd never let it cross our minds, yeah. But then you start thinking about those things. That's a very good story. I like that. (laughs) Okay, let's go on to number 13. Nothing ever excited him. Always he was deeply calm. He could laugh. He could also move quickly when he had to. But he was always calm. It's a very interesting distinction. Once, late for a lecture, he set out at a run. Don't be nervous, a student cautioned. One can run nervously, or one can run calmly, was the master's reply. But not to run when you need to is to be lazy. <laughs> so what you're, what, there's, two, there's two really interesting points here. One is just how, how master just didn't allow himself to be ruffled by the circumstances of life. You know, it's, it's a very interesting... Um, you know, to be able to stay in the depth of the ocean no matter what the waves are doing is something worth remembering. But it's balanced by the fact that too often people think that calmness is to keep your energy low or, or not to be committed to what you're trying to accomplish and often then not willing to put out the energy or the commitment of energy that's required to bring success in what you've chosen to do. And that's not the same as being calm. And, and Swami tries to make that distinction with the simple example of Master running to, to the lecture. You know, that would be so easy to overlay a pseudo-spiritual attitude on that or to behave. Swamiji talks sometimes, you know, sometimes teachers get trapped in their own role. Swamiji talked about a particular modern, um, whoever he was, who was sitting in the, in the living room reading the newspaper but when certain guests came in, he quickly folded up the newspaper and put it away and made it seem like he wasn't doing something as mundane as reading the newspaper. he just basically become a victim of his own PR. And Master just wasn't going to have other people tell him how he should manifest his energy. You have to remember also, Master was like, what, 26 when he came to America? 27 years old? You know, he, was a, he was a young man, and... He was a very powerful person through his whole life. But add to that the power of youth. And you can, you know, can only imagine how dynamic his energy was. And you just can't picture him coming to America to start this work, to change the direction of everything, and just kind of wandering around with half energy. You know, it, it must have been a, an extraordinarily powerful force that he put out. So calmness is not the same. As, as not being dynamic. So, but then he would make the distinction. You can run nervously. You can be anxious about what's happening. I've noticed Swamiji also has a, a refusal to, have, to, to allow circumstances to agitate or interrupt. The con- his concentration is how he would put it. When I was in Pune, in the week that I was there, they, a lot of p- people of the future residents and Others from the, their group were gathered. And so we had, and a lot of, there were a number of visitors from America and Europe. And so we were doing a lot of satsangs. And in the afternoons, 
we sort of divided up into small small groups and just went off to various places in the community and you know five to ten people would of the of the resident group would sit with a couple of the visitors and I was with uh, Dharma Das in one of those discussions and somehow or another we were talking about Swamiji and I can't quite remember what the context was but I was commenting about the fact that he doesn't enjoy tamasic energy is how I've tried to explain it sometime that you know he just to my knowledge I don't know if he's ever let a single day pass in his life when he has not done some creative work or something you know serviceful for others and and even on vacation we were talking you know, it's always, well, what time will we meet for breakfast? You know, 9 a.m., you know, and you want to say, how about 11? You know, it's like, but it's just like the energy always flows. It always flows, and he doesn't enjoy just collapsing into low energy. And, you know, a lot of us do enjoy collapsing into low energy. The subconscious mind tells you that you'll have pleasure in lack of awareness, so the temptation to dull your awareness is often there and sometimes indulged in but not by Swamiji, because it's not pleasurable to him. It's just as simple as that. And then Dharmadas refined it in a very interesting way. He said, Swami does everything with the absolute full concentration of his energy. And it was an interesting way to put it. His, his concentration never varies. So whatever he's doing, there's a full commitment. And I remember once when we were in a rush to go somewhere, we were running late to go somewhere, but we were having breakfast, and I observed in myself, you know, an agitated hurry. And Swamiji was simply eating his breakfast, and he was eating his breakfast with exactly the same completely focused energy that he would in any other circumstances until he was finished. And then as soon as he was finished, he turned his attention to getting us out of the house and getting us into the car and where we were going. But there was no point in dividing his concentration when he was finishing his breakfast by having half of it be on the necessity to rush out of the house. And it was, it was a very interesting um, explanation of the way he moves through the world. And so then, when it was time to hurry, he hurried with the same focused concentration because a lot of nervous energy is because your energy is divided between the action you're taking to solve the problem and your anxiety about the problem. And it does nothing to to solve the problem. It just divides your energy from the solution. And if you're calm, you simply do the needful without all of this other concern. That's why, you know, when we're trying to make the distinction between peace and calmness, you know, peace is maybe the complete absence of, of stimulation or action or energy of any kind, but calmness can take place, as we often say, in the middle of a battlefield. You know, a, 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 a talented soldier can be in a life-threatening situation, you know, operating weapons and moving through great danger, but his concentration is not divided. Therefore, his mind is completely calm. That's what a calm mind is, is that the concentration isn't divided. And so it's an interesting way of thinking about how to calm yourself down. Is just ask yourself, where is my concentration? How many things am I concentrating on? And once you, once you have it honed, then calmness is automatic. That's why Master said you can run nervously. What is it to be running nervously? You're, you're, you're afraid. You're thinking about something other 
than just getting from here to there and what you're going to do when you get there. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, Ramani? When Swami was, you were, uh, we were in Bombay and um, Swami was going to go down on that pilgrimage and you were oh. there, yeah, and uh-huh. everybody was getting ready to leave. Uh-huh. He was sitting on the couch, the cars were being brought up, and I was right beside you, but I think we, he said, somebody said, are you ready to go? And just quietly he said, I'm ready, but I don't know for what. <laughs> and I thought that's kind of a clue. Uh, yeah. to, I'm ready. You can be ready. Interesting. Yeah, that was when we were all rushing out. That was when we got in the taxi, just David and I alone, and the taxi driver said, uh, What airline are you flying? We were, we were driving off to the airport. We opened, rolled down the window and said, What city are we going to? We were so completely out of touch with what was going on. <laughs> we didn't have any idea where we were going. That was, that was the trip that was arranged in the moment. Yeah. Why don't you all come with me? Right. Why don't you all come with me? He said, Oh, okay. So everything was arranged in an hour and a half. Um, let me think for just a minute. You know, oftentimes, the, uh, uh, what is her name? Vanamali Devi, um, you know, that lovely devotee of Krishna that we all know in Rishikesh. Um, she talked about once, I remember satsang she gave, I've always remembered it. She talked about how time is different, time is, how, how time is elastic, that's what she was talking about. And she was talking about that if she has something to do and there's not enough time to do it, she turns the clock to the wall and goes into what she calls Krishna time as a Krishna devotee. And she says, and just, she knows that if it has to be done, and it has to be done a certain period of time, it will be. And she just simply then concentrates and does it. And I've always just loved that, and I've actually used that really often. Just before we left for India in January, I was engaged in the project of trying to get the school, the costumes for the school theater production done, and I needed to set things in motion before we left for three weeks so that when I came back, you know, we would be in a place that we needed to be. And I I had a, a number of people who had volunteered to sew while we were gone, but I, I know, as a seamstress myself, that if you have to cut the fabric out, it's, it's a psychological block. But if it's handed to you already cut out, you're more inclined to sew it. So I had 45 pieces that needed to be sewn. And someone had said they would cut them out for me, but I wasn't really sure. I mean, I wasn't sure. That wasn't a clear arrangement. And I knew that if I... Just as, you know, just as I was finishing, we had to get up at like five the next morning to catch a, or, or four, to catch a six o'clock plane or something like that. And about eight o'clock that night, or maybe seven, it occurred to me that I actually needed to do all that work before I left. Because if I didn't do it before I left, there were, a lot of things could happen. So I just turned the clocks to the wall, you know, or I put them so that I couldn't see them, and I just started doing the work. And I put on Swami reading Revelations of Christ. And I stayed up all night. I didn't sleep, which is actually a terrific way to 
start a trip to India because you immediately go to sleep and you're just flipped over. And so it's really, this is the second time in my life I've done that and I highly recommend it. It's a really good system. But, uh, but because I remembered Von Mali Davies' statement and I had that experience, you know, you can do that work nervously or you can do it calmly. And it was just, it was just that, we talked about this in the material success course because Swamiji was one of the lessons there and I had examples also from working on the costumes, which is when God teaches me all sorts of things from making those little kids' costumes, which is why I keep doing it, I think. Um, how, Mas- how Swami writes in the material success course that we think that things take time. But he said, in your, ma- in your visualization and your commitment and your power of magnetism, you should include fact time in that, meaning that don't just think it's going to take a long time, you need to include in your understanding how much time it's going to take, which is if you only have this much time, that's how much time it's going to take, and you have to hold that with a strong thought. So Ami gives lots of examples of just simply not having the time to do something, but it has to be done. He had to write a book in a week, he had to write the songs for Mystic Harp in a couple of days. You know, a couple of times he had to write a book in a week. Um, he, he had to finish a slideshow by the time the program was that evening, whatever it was. But you include time in your, um, in your uh, concentrated commitment that this will get done and it will get done in this period of time because it has to. And it was sort of like I started at 7 or 8 at night. It might even have been a little later. I knew exactly how much work I had to do and I knew when I had to finish. And I was certain that I would finish just at the time I needed to, and I almost literally finished, you know, just at the time that I would have gotten up. You know, I just cut out the last, and I didn't, you know, rush. I just, I just worked, I can work fast, but I didn't hurry. I just worked steadily through as fast as it could be done with concentration, and I finished the last piece, folded it up, organized it, put everything away at just the time I would have set the alarm. But I wasn't surprised because it was just like, it was Krishna time. And if, you're, if your need is righteous and you're moving through doing what, what has to be done for a purpose other than self-interest, you can, you can rely on the universe to support you. you know? And I worked steadily. I stopped maybe at a certain point I ate something and I sat down to eat it. But just very briefly because... I knew that time didn't allow for me to goof off, you know. But it's interesting. And that was, ex- and whenever I would begin to feel even slightly tense, you know, which would cross my mind, I would say, no, 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 there's no reason for that. You can run nervously, you can run calmly. We're running. It's true that we're running, but why be nervous? Because you're going to run anyway. So what's the point? You can't run any faster than you can run. Interesting, huh? And once again, you see, this is our master. He does things. And he asks us to do things. So we have to have the techniques of doing things. We can't have the techniques of just sitting there. Which, you know, disciples of Ramana Maharshi perhaps could have, but we can't have them. Or people who think that it's Kali Yuga descending. It's just not their job to uplift all of humanity. You see, we're trying to transform all of humanity. Oh, okay. All right. Any questions or comments about that? It's so I love Swami Kriyananda's writing. 
Swami Kriyananda's writing is skipping across the mountaintops. He just he skips from mountaintop to mountaintop, and he gives you a paragraph or two about what the top of the mountain looks like. And then when you when you look at the top of the mountain, you see implied is the whole mountain, you know, and all the route up. But you, but you he doesn't describe the whole route, but he implies it. And you just and he and he does it with logic, not just with intuition. But when you start in it, you could just get so interesting, you know, when you see what he says, with just a, without a single wasted word. Just even in terms of writing, it's just so much fun. And you know, nothing is accidental. It just it gives you two sentences, and you've got the whole huge picture here. That's why it takes me so long. <laughs> All right. Any thoughts or comments on that before we go on? Okay, number fourteen. One thing I noted about him was his always blissful outlook on life. I would notice this fact not only in his calm inward expression, but also from the deep bliss I often felt in his presence. Isn't that wonderful? Yesterday, or on Sunday, I quoted that statement that I heard Swamiji say in one of his Gita commentaries. You, you, you cannot get people to change. You cannot scold people into changing. You can't scare them into changing. You can only change them by sharing your bliss. I mean, that's another one of those statements that, wow, there's a lot of uh, uh, really interesting thoughts in that. And, you know, when you really think about yourself, like what really makes me want to be different? Well, what I want to be different when I find that that way of behavior makes me happy and I suffer less. And when somebody can give to you their consciousness and you get a glimpse of what life could really be like, that's very, you know, it's very enticing. When somebody feeds you your first avocado or your first ripe mango or your first artichoke, you know, it's like, I want more of these for a very simple reason. It's just they, they're good. It makes me happy to do these. I was remembering, I, I forgot to say it on Sunday, but I remembered Swamiji tells in the path a story of, uh, there was a, a, a disciple, I think he was a Hollywood celebrity of some sort, who was um, very um, interested in the teachings when he was in Master's company. And then Master would have him set appointments with Swamiji when he was supposed to come and get instructions, because Master was not going to take the time to instruct him himself. And the the person would make a big show of his interest, but then he would just never show up for the appointments. And Swami Kriyananda became a little annoyed with him. And um, the next time, well, there, there's two different stories, but in, in one context, when the next time that the man came to visit Master, Swami treated him a little bit icily. And afterwards, Master said, you're awfully cold with him. And then Swami explained, you know, that he didn't believe in his sincerity because he never followed through. And Master's response was, I wonder how all of you would have gotten along if I had treated you that way. You know, see, in our minds we think that we can be scolded into changing, but we don't. It just depresses us as a rule. And another example was when Swamiji presented to Master that someone wasn't behaving up to snuff. And Master's response was, well, we'll have fun with him today. And Swamiji assumed that Master would scold him. But instead, Master was warmer and more winning and more gracious and more giving to him than ever. I mean, that was Master's way of saying, well, he's not living up to it, so let me give him more of my bliss. 
because if he has more bliss, then he'll be more inspired to do it. You know, it, those are hard lessons to learn because we, we actually believe, we even imagine, you know, that we, I started to say this on Sunday, but I never finished the thought. We imagine that a frontal assault on the ego is what we really want. But sometimes the people who are the most inclined, I mean, there was this person who passed through Ananda and didn't stick very long, and they were always saying to Swami, you know, just please correct me, just tell me what you think, and, you know, I really want, and Swamiji said, if I breathe the slightest criticism, the person became so defensive and upset, you know, because, and, and I myself, who can be too blunt-spoken and have been much worse, if you think I'm bad now, you should have known me then, I just used to think it was a good idea. And then finally I noticed how, how hurt I would be when people would say blunt things to me. And it thought like, well, the actual modern word is, duh, you know? It's like it doesn't encourage you, it makes you feel sad. It tends to take away your incentive and your hope when, people, when you're doing your best and then people tell you what a mess you are. You know, yes, there are moments, and so even Swamiji himself, on occasion, but not very often, very, very rarely. And often people will hear it much sterner than it's actually spoken. I had an experience early on with him where when I told him that I needed to improve my powers of analysis. (laughs) I said that in June of 1971, at least that's my excuse, because I was subject to the delusion that if it's not working, do more of it. Then not, you know... (laughs) It, it didn't occur to me that it wasn't working because it was totally the wrong approach and that it was never going to work. So I said, I really think I need to improve my powers of analysis. I mean, I was this skinny little person with this way over intense, completely too serious demeanor. And the last thing I needed was to improve my powers of analysis, I promise you. <laughs> that was part of the period of time, maybe even the same week. Um, Seva had been injured. Seva had a, an accident in 1971 in a, carburetor blew up and she got a gasoline burn all over her face and uh, miraculously I mean she wasn't even scarred you know her she has a beautiful face and she's you know she's an old woman now but she was a very beautiful young woman then and we went into town to visit her in the hospital a group of us maybe 10 and uh, afterwards Swamiji took us all to Swenson's ice cream shop which was a really big treat because we lived way out in the boonies and you know ice cream was not that easy to come by and I was very 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 strict in my diet at that time and I thought I was nearly in cosmic consciousness because it had been two years since I'd had sugar (laughs) (laughs) and for some reason and I'm sure that Swamiji or at least God God so arranged um, that, that we were about 10 or so of us at a table, and he was at the at one end of the table, and I was at the other, so that I was looking right at him. Everybody ordered ice cream sundaes, led by Swamiji, who didn't have diabetes in those days. You know, led by Swamiji, I ordered a glass of water, room temperature, no ice, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat there with that glass of water. Well, everybody around me, and I'm I'm sure that. I mean, I suspect that Swami was exaggerating, you know, but the enthusiasm and the <laughs> ardor which which everyone, including him, consumed their, not just ice cream, but their sundaes, their banana splits. And I sat there, you know, like the shriveled old prune, 
sipping my glass of water. Fortunately, by the grace of God, it occurred to me that I was the one who was wrong. <laughs> and it was the beginning of the crack in my whole system. But that was the consciousness that said to him, I really need to improve my powers of analysis. And this is what, where I was going with all of this, is that I remember that he raised his voice and lifted himself out of the chair when he said, No! I think it very unlikely that he did either of those things. I think, I suspect he simply said no. But to me, it was just like this wave of energy that I, I remembered as sound and physical movement. No, he said, very forcefully. And then a little more gently, no. <laughs> what you need is devotion, he said like that. And fortunately, again, it took me years, years to know what that meant but at least I heard it. But you know, it was a mild corrective. But he could have said so many other things at that point. He could have said so many things. But I would have just been utterly confused and discouraged by them. You know, even sitting there eating that ice cream, they were just having a really good time. And I was so busy not having a good time (laughs) that the contrast was stark. Of course, ice cream doesn't really matter. It's not even important. But there was the attitude behind it. It's just so many times. I mean, Swamiji has corrected me, but not, not as much as I would have corrected me, if you know what I mean. Because he understood what would work. Interesting, huh? So, Master was always blissful in his outlook on life. It just, first of all, that was the world in which he lived. It's, it, it, if, you, if you really think about it, why not? Not only by his calm outlook, but by the vibrations he emanated, and we have to be like the Master. If we find ourselves not having a calm and blissful outlook on life, we have to stop and ask ourselves, why not? You know, what is there that's happening that, that really justifies my abandoning my guru's consciousness? He, needs, he lives in me. He's taken over. He's in charge. And if he's not worried, do you remember that incredible story that Ananta told us at Spiritual Renewal last year, last summer, when he was talking about um, it, the whole story? He gave it to me for my book too, so it'll come out in there. The whole story was about trying to put a new roof on the temple in Sacramento and running into all these problems with the city. And even though he had plenty of time to re-roof it before the first rain, it was the week when the first rain was going to come, and he still didn't have a roof on. And the whole inside of the building was going to get soaked by this. And he was trying to work it out with City Hall. And they were giving him so much trouble. And he was just beginning to become a little concerned about it. And he wa- I think he walked out of City Hall. And he said all of a sudden he felt a presence on his side. And he felt a big arm go around his shoulder. And he, he felt Master say, Ananta, it's my temple. I got it covered. and he got the roof up and that night it started to rain (laughs) it's my temple I got it covered isn't that dear okay that'll be enough for tonight any comments or thoughts before we close up okay thank you all for coming